What are the sounds that move you? A skylark singing in spring? A speech that inspires you to act? A voice that reminds you of home? Words and performance have been vital lifelines throughout my life. And in this podcast series, I'm exploring how language and speech have shaped all of our lives, our work, our identities. Words, English words, full of echoes, memories. So I'm diving into the British Library Sound Archive, the nation's largest collection of almost 6.5 million recordings that span the whole history of recorded sound. I'm in here with all of this and I can't quite believe my look. In this series, I'll be sharing some of my favourite recordings with you and some rather special wordsmiths. I'm Lem Sisay. Welcome to All About Sound from the British Library. I'm loving the hat <laughs> jumper combo, gold. man. The sweater hat combo, the gold. Thank Come you. on. My friend doesn't like my hats. Yeah, tell your friend they got it wrong. <laughs> I'll stick to my guns. Stand by your hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we ready? Okay. Stand by your hand. <laughs> From England, I learned about various types of Englishes spoken by the South Londoners, by the black kids, by the white posh kids who grew up around Notting Hill and Holland Park where I was schooling. And in the midst of all of that, after three years, I moved to Dublin where there were other types of Englishes spoken with other inflections. To where you came from, I quickly got a sense of the possibilities of language within one single language. There's so much to unlock here, there's so much to dance with. And I think it really informs the way that I write poetry. How many crossed over here? Who else shuffled earth, attempted flight, and lost it all among the trees? Is migration central to the human condition? We migrate from the mother's womb. When we migrate, can language help us feel at home? On the other hand, how does language make us feel unwelcome, excluded, imprisoned even? How does migration affect the ways we communicate and express ourselves in writing, poetry and performance? Today, I'm exploring these questions with the help of the British Library Sound Archive and my special guest, poet and playwright, Inua Ellams. Hi, Lem. It's a pleasure, and I'm really <laughs> pleased you're here, Inua. Thanks for having me. Inua, in many ways, audiences migrate in flocks to the theatre as they did to see your play, Barbershop Chronicles, which sold out all its runs. I was lucky enough to be there at the National Theatre in London and it caused such a stir in Sydney, Australia, the Prime Minister came to see it. Language changes. It's the evolution of pigeon. No, no, pigeon is different. Uh, it's being corrupted. Eh? Look, <laughs> when we they play football for school, eh? we got to sing. We don't come again, no. We don't come again. Throw away, throw away. Now, my son, he sings, we have come again! <laughs> we have come again! Throw it away! Throw it away! 
Your name is Inlight, Sinua. Will you tell me about your name, what it means, where it's from, who gave it to you, why, and how you feel about it today? Ah, that's a good question. I found various meanings for my name and I began to collect them. So in my father's language, and I was named after my father, Inuar, it means shade, like a place of solace or protection from sunlight, like under a tree, calm and cool. And I like to think that I'm calm and cool. <laughs> right, right. In another lang- Nigerian language, Ibibio, it means mouth. In Kiswahili, it means to lift up. And amongst the Inuits, the Inuits worship an Inua, the spirit of Alaska. And it's this life force that they worship and praise. And they have folk songs about Inua. There's an Inuit folk band called Inua. So these are the various meanings of, of my name. I'm going to collect them. Inua, thank you. Your first play, The Fourteenth Tale, was awarded a Fringe First at the Edinburgh International Festival in 2009. You recently toured your show, An Evening with an Immigrant, which tells the story of you, and I'm quoting here, escaping fundamentalist Islam, experiencing prejudice and friendship in Dublin, and drinking wine with the Queen of England, all the while without a country to belong to or place to call home. Close quotes. What does home mean to you, Inua? Because I've spent the longest time without one, without a fixed one, I think home is the nebulous, gaseous zone that exists between myself and my laptop. And I say that because I understand that sphere, those parameters. It is safe when I'm connected to creativity, where the wealth of human knowledge is beneath my fingertips and I can tap into everything and create. So it's a space that migrates wherever I go, wherever I am in the world, wherever country, wherever space I am. That is the safest space that I've known. It's been the most consistent part of my life for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. So that is home. Where my belongings are are in a flat in Deptford in South London. So that encloses my home. And then instead of concentric circles spiraling out them, then it's South London, then it's London, then it's England, then it's probably places in Nigeria, then comes back to the rest of Britain. (laughs) My parents' friends, they often used to talk about stories back home because that was their connection. Me and my sister opened it and everybody said, oh, the first two Asian girls to open a takeaway. It's always men, isn't it? It was brilliant. Those 20 years I spent in my shop. So I decided that if I had children that born of Welsh parents in Vancouver, I could train them to sing of the Welsh pieces that I had been accustomed to doing. I'm really pleased to connect with you today um, so that we can rifle through the British Library Sound Archive. Mm -hmm. Having had the privilege to see your star rise and shine across the United Kingdom and the world, I'll dive straight in to talk about the sound of the voice. Can you tell me a little about the sound of your voice and the different ways that it's been received? My accent is a bit of a Frankenstein monster in that... When I'm around Nigerians, it becomes thicker, flatter, deeper. But when I came to England, it became colonized by this attempt 
at an English accent. And then I moved to Dublin and it became really like Dublin outskirts. And then I grew up watching American television. So my accent is this inflection, is this smorgasbord of all of them. And a lot of Trinidadians think I sound Trini, but I'm not. I'm just Irish, Nigerian, English, and American. And it means that sometimes when I'm reading poetry to my audiences, to audiences who don't know I am, where I am from, they think that I'm from anywhere which has its benefits and its curses, right? It means that they're listening to my poems thinking, where is this writer's DNA? Where does it stem from? And they don't know where to place me, which means that they have to listen a little bit more intensely to try and figure out various things. But I'm a third culture kid. When I'm around third culture kids, kids who have grown up in various parts of the world, we sound like each other. A lot of the things that you've just said are sort of in the DNA of the areas that I want to explore in the archive that we're going to hear. So I've selected some intriguing pieces of audio from the British Library Sound Archive to direct our conversation. And I want to get straight into it, playing you a recording from 2012 of poet Kai Miller reading the only thing far away from his collection, writing down the vision, essays and prophecies. The only thing far away. In this country, Jamaica is not quite as far as you might think. Walking through Peckham in London, West Moss Road in Manchester, you pass green and yellow shops where Thai-head women bargain over the price of dasheen. And beside Jamaica is Spain, selling large yellow peppers, lemon, to squeeze onto chicken. Beside Spain is Pakistan, then Egypt, Singapore, the world. Here, strangers build home together, flood the ports with curry and papayas. In Peckham and on Moss Road, the place smells of more than just patty or tandoori. It smells like Mumbai, like Castries, like Princess Street, Jamaica. Sometimes in this country, the only thing far away is this country. I love Kai's voice. It seems as if he's walking you downstairs into the basement of a home and you never quite reach it, which I've always loved. That was lovely to see. And I say see because I saw it. I saw everything. The poet paints the mm -hmm. picture yeah. and we get to walk into the painting yeah. with the poem and the voice. There's this Welsh word, Hiraeth, which is a nostalgia for a place that might have never been. And it took me straight to there. In terms of migration, that's a very interesting concept and, mm -hmm. and a nostalgia for a place that may have never been. Yeah. So the diaspora can have a sense of home that may have never been there. Yeah. But it is just as real. Yeah, as what was. Is rose-tinted glasses is how the memory works. Every time we remember, we're remembering the last time we remember. And in that transaction between ourselves and the ghost of what was is alchemy and his hope and his truth, but also it isn't. It's like we're lying to ourselves in order to remain human. You know, you may be English, you may go to live in Spain, mm -hmm. for example. There are a lot of English people living in Spain. Yeah. And we look back we look back to an England that isn't the England yeah. when we were there. Yeah. And same for all cultures, I mean, yeah. they can do that. 
in migration, somehow you can feel like you've left something that was never actually there. Yeah. We're getting very philosophical now. But these are the problems of philosophy. In Bertrand Russell's introductions to the problems of philosophy, he talked about the nature of reality and memory. You know, what is, what isn't. When we get closer and closer to the truth, it dematerializes, it disintegrates, because it's not there. We're making it up as we go along. Here, strangers build home together, flood the ports with curry. I mean, there's a whole load to unpack from his line, strangers build a home together. The way I perceive that is that the diaspora can actually build an idea of their home uh, together and, and actually by speaking it to each other, it becomes more and more real. The idea of home. The thing is, we are all strangers. All countries are illusions. These are lies or maybe versions of truths that are dictated to us by politics and by by history books. And history book is not fact. It's written by those who remembered as close as possible to what was there or those who just happened to be having the pen in the room and wrote down what they thought happened. It's all a construction. It's all a mirage. You've lived in Nigeria, UK, Ireland when you were young. Yeah. How did language help you? Ah, well, I only speak English, unfortunately. My parents were from different parts of Nigeria, so settled for the common language, their common tongue, which was English, which meant that when I arrived in the UK from Nigeria, I was extremely verbose. Or maybe I was just as verbose as anyone else here, but my parents got me reading like Great Expectations and The Tale of Two Cities when I was nine, nine or ten years old. So I was reading far beyond my years, which completely flummoxed my English teachers because they had stereotypes about African kids. And there I was, you know, dissecting Shakespeare without needing them to translate it for me. So that completely confused them. And then from England, I learned about various types of Englishes spoken by the South Londoners, by the black kids, by the white posh kids who grew up around Notting Hill and Holland Park where I was schooling and then Victoria where I was living. And in the midst of all of that, after three years, I moved to Dublin where there were other types of Englishes spoken with other inflections. My granddad on my mum's side, um, he was a bus driver. He, he, he actually drove the horse buses. Um, but when my name was... I suppose, I mean, the weather is the only thing we can all agree on, isn't it? That's why we talk about the weather so much. Perhaps it's opening the door now and coming into the window. Perhaps before you know what is happening. So I quickly got a sense of the possibilities of language within one single language, which drove me towards writing poetry, thinking, oh my God, there's so much to unlock here. There's so much to dance with. And I think it really informs the way that I write poetry. What she didn't know is Tyrone had planted saplings of his spirit among the fields of barley and seeds of himself among the sunflowers. And these kept calling for him when he returned to the city of bricks, clawing for their kin. I began to travel a lot with the British Council right across the world, meeting various poets who spoke English incredibly eloquently, but English was not their first language. So there's an international English that is spoken, and those who speak those Englishes outnumber those who speak the Queen's English here in England. So when I write poetry, I think of those international English speakers and those audiences because they are my audience. Though he filled his room with them, he couldn't match life out in the fields, the skies 
unencumbered gaze. Well, English has traveled all over the... It has migrated all over the world, whether rightly or wrongly, and you can speak to Mm -hmm. all Mm -hmm. of those places where the English language has gone. Yeah, which is exciting. And there's a lot of colonial and emotional baggage attached to that, but you have to find where it meets your spirit, your greatest spirit, and find stillness within that to make art. You know, I want to play some more recordings from the archive now. Many of the clips we'll be hearing in the series have been digitised as part of mm-hmm. the British Library's Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project. Voices from all over the country have been saved from obsolescence, giving us rare insight into everyday lives. I'm talking about radio documentaries, music recordings, interviews mm-hmm. and oral histories. And I think you'll be interested in these. OK. To explain a bit more about what oral histories are and why they're so important, I'm going to hand over to somebody who plays a big part in the archiving effort, and then we'll hear a, a couple of recordings. Okay. Hello, my name is Vicky Caron, and I'm the cataloguing manager at the Northwest Hub of the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project. Oral history is recorded interviews with people about their lives, about their experiences. It could be about a certain event that's happened. I think with oral history, you also get to capture the emotion and the feelings in the telling of those stories. And the best thing about oral history is people tend to go off on tangents. And so you always get that little bit more than say what would be published in a book. Never been here before. Many of our golden friends had been to Europe, had been yeah. to England, the New England, but uh-huh. we'd never been out of Africa, barring holidays in Goa yes. and India. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was quite a culture shock, to say the least. Culture shock. <laughs> How did you go about uh, deciding where to live? And you had relations here, maybe. Yes, yes. Mm. Uh, Already uh, living a here. A cousin of ours, of uh, mine, had come here a year before us. Right. So we wrote to them and said, look, could we park ourselves till we find our own feet? This is something we had to do, even looking for a job when he first yes. came. And he said, don't worry about a the job. There are jobs, you can get a job today and change it tomorrow. Jobs were plentiful in those days. Uh, I never wanted to come to England. I was terrified of the winter. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought, how on earth could I live there? If you know? you'd had your choice, what, you, what would you have done? I thought perhaps we'd go back to Goa because mm. uh, the education for the children well, would be okay. Either. I remember standing uh, on the rail of the boat as it pulled away from India, and uh, my parents were both crying and crying. Right. And 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 India was getting smaller and smaller, and all the lights were getting dimmer and dimmer. And I re- I didn't really understand why they were crying, but they were crying because they knew that they'd never see her again. And we docked in Tilbury, and it was a really grey day, really drizzly. And when I went to school, all the kids equally used to take the piss out of me, right, because of how I talked, and they thought that I was an Indian from the States, yeah? Like a red Indian, right? And I think in about three weeks, I changed my accent and um, I started learning to survive.
You just heard an interview with Mervyn and Elsia Massiel. The interviewer was Jill Chapman, and it was recorded in January 1990. The recording has been digitised by the sound curators working in Bristol. Jilly Salvat then described her memories of arriving in England from India shortly after partition in 1948 wow. by Allegri Damji. It was particularly interesting how Jilly, the final interview, said she changed her accent within three weeks. Mm -hmm. She says, I started learning to survive. What do you think is the significance of that moment? Code switching. That's exactly it. And thinking if you sound like you fit in, it might bamboozle those who think you don't enough to begin to treat you differently, to treat you like one of them. And I imagine it did to some extent, but obviously if she had just come from India, she looked visibly different. So there were still battles that she could not have won simply by changing her accent. But I understand that sentiment very well. Mervyn said, we had to find our own feet. Mm. Now, I think this is probably the case for everybody. We all, at some point, have to realise that we have to find our own feet. But how does that relate to yourself? Mm. One of my qualities, and why I think I live out the meaning of my name, which is being a place of comfort and solace, is because my survival mechanism was to be as open as possible to whoever would come in to make space for them in my life. And I went through a period of writing poetry for complete strangers. I'd give it to them with my email address at the bottom and run before they could read it in my presence because I was nervous. It was just literally like I'm reaching out a branch, an olive branch, open heart surgery. Here's a piece of my heart and running before they could stamp it in my presence. But every so often someone would respond and say, thank you for the poem. Do you want to meet up? Can I buy you a cup of tea and blah, blah, blah. And I use poetry as that mechanism literally to make friends. And I have a show now called Search Party um, where I don't plan what to read to my poetry audiences. I have an iPad which has all the poems I've ever written and I tell the audience to give me words which I type into the search function and read to them poems that contain your words. So myself and my audience, we build everything together. We're finding the feet. We're finding, you know, the path as we walk it together. And after 10 minutes... So after 40 minutes, there's 10 minutes of Q&A where they can ask me anything, and I try to be as honest as possible. The clips we heard were both oral histories, and I know that, that type of recording is important to you. Mm. Um, when you wrote your play, Barbershop Chronicles, you travelled across Africa recording 60 hours of male banter, quote-unquote, a form of oral history. Why did you do this? Particularly the physical recording of it, particularly the tape, the archiving of it. I think... Originality is overrated, and I think it's tied to capitalism and it's tied to law and possession being nine-tenths of the law. Um, and there's this impetus always for artists to create things new. That is a Sisyphean task at the best of times, and it's pointless when the world is out there and it's far more complicated and bamboozling than anything I can create. So I just thought rather than sitting down and trying to make up these stories, just go out and meet those people. They are storytellers. They would tell me their own lives, and that is what happened in barbershops. 
So I'd go to these countries, to these spaces, and ask the barbers, do you mind if I record? And they'd ask their clients, do you mind if he records? And as soon as they were fine with it, I'd just press go. And this meant that when I was writing the play, I had all of those worlds, those textures of all of those voices informing the characters. I could sit down and hear how they breathed as they spoke and it gave me girth and size and lightness of feet and all of this delicious character detail I shared with the actors as we're making the play together. I'd play them the records of people who they'd go on to be and it felt necessary to do so because we were telling our story. What's the relationship between language, barbershops and migration? The earliest and simplest barbershop that I encountered as I was rehearsing the play was just under a tree on the roadside in Nigeria. There was just a slab of rock beside it on which was drawn a man's face. And the barber stood there with a plastic lawn deck chair and a pair of scissors and a razor blade. And that was his barbershop. And people would come and sit down. And this was a safe space for them. And he would just talk to them and clip their hair. And I thought, that's it. That is how simple it is to create community. And I say community because he had people who would pull over on the roadside and he'd make appointments with them, you know. It was that simple on the roadside, people migrating, going to work, going back home. And there was this place where they knew they could park, sit down and be catered for, be beautified by this man on the, on the roadside. Like, he does this for them, I should do this for him. It was my contribution to this history of narration and migration. What did it teach you about the way men communicate? And was there a marked difference between barbers, say, in Nigeria and Nigerian barbers in London? In London here, it was largely more gregarious, noisier barbershops, noisier relationships with barbers and clients where it was very teasing. And also, barbershops here were about safe spaces for black men, whereas in a place like Nigeria, where there is a black population, that need for safety wasn't in those spaces. So they felt differently. And that came out in the language politics, in our free and the need to be free that the man came into the shops with. And so the power dynamics were slightly different, but also so delicious to witness. Delicious to witness. Mm. It's time for our third recording from the archive now. We're about to hear from the acclaimed British author, Andrea Levy. This recording was part of the National Life Stories Project, Authors' Lives, and the interviewer was Sarah O'Reilly. In 2014, when the interview took place, Andrea knew that she was living with an untreatable cancer. She said the interview appealed because she wanted to leave a record, an archive, in a way an archive of her experience for, and, and I'm quoting her here, a country which I feel absolutely a part of, but not everybody feels that I am part of. Mm. Who did you come from? What's this all about? You know, you grow up in England. You go to school and you learn about English history. You have a sense of the kings and queens and the sort of who you are and that sort of thing. And so if you're English, you have a sense of who you are. It's come to you through the culture in which you live. When you've come from outside or your parents have come from outside, that sense is lost. And so you either take on this majority culture and say, this is mine, 
or you have to seek out the one that has been lost to you. Nobody's going to tell you the history of Jamaica, you know, in this country. I'm still seeking it out. I found it interesting when Andrea said either take on this majority culture and say this is mine or you have to seek out the one that has been lost to you. Do you agree with that? It's about assimilation, right? And what that means to you on a personal level and how that wades into how important your lineage is to you and what acceptance means and what is important to your identity. I understand those tensions. I have them. I'm a first-generation immigrant. I remember leaving. I remember living and leaving. And the conflicts are there. The thing is, when I go back to Nigeria, the Nigerians can see, and I don't understand how, from how I walk, that I'm not a Nigerian. You know, they call me Oyumbo boy, which means white boy. When I come here, and, you know, it's apparent by these hats that I wear, for instance, that I'm not part of the majority by my look. So often I find myself cast at sea. This is why living in South London helps, because I'm surrounded by people who are all cast at sea. We're all migrants on boats, floating, fighting, and trying to reach solid land. How can language and performance, poetry, plays, help us do this? I think writers acknowledge that all is transient. Meaning is transient. Words are not steadfast. And there's this thing I love about novels, about the world, that the world is chaos. The job of the writer is to impose order on it, to make sense of it, to hold people. And I go to books for that comfort. And I think it helps those who are lost, creating a safe world. We know the rules of reading. We know what the chapter does, what the line does. These are the frameworks, these are the parameters in which we tell stories. Come as you are, we got you. I've read that there's a Nelson Mandela saying you really like, and quote, if you speak to someone in a language they understand, you have their head. If you speak to them in their own language, you have their heart. Mm. Why do you really like that? Shout out to Nelson for his wisdom and his joy. Why do I like that? Because it points at the dynamics of language, of what is understood versus what is felt. You know, it's like listening to a favorite song. Your body moves to it before your brain acknowledges it. You know, there are places that we go beyond logic and language operates at that level when it's yours. And now and then I get it. When I do visit Nigeria and there's a phrase and it feels as if my father is speaking to me, my mother is speaking to me and, and it just, it melts me. That's what all of that speaks to. I never wanted to come to England. I was terrified of the winter. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought, how on earth could I live there? You know, The world. Here, strangers build home together, flood the ports with curry and papayas. And I think in about three weeks, I changed my accent and um, I started learning to survive. And so you either take on this majority culture and say, this is mine, or you have to seek out the one that has been lost to you. Inua, it has been fantastic exploring the archive with you. 
What are you going to be taking away from the recordings you've heard today? I think Andrea Levy's voice, because I saw the production based on a novel, Small Island, um, a few weeks ago, and it was dazzlingly done. Um, the director, Rufus Norris, is a friend of mine, so watching his mind meet Andrea's and the melding of those in a place like the National Theatre with audiences of all walks of life and generations understanding this Windrush narrative and how we meet contemporary politics, it was safe being there because we all understood British history and hearing her voice is like a javelin thrown right into the heart of the place. She is there now. Inua, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed this. I'll never forget the description, the beautiful description of what home is to somebody like you who travels all around the world, it being this uh, space, this constellation mm. between you and the written word as you're writing on the laptop. Thank you very much, Inua Ellen. Thanks, Lem. Thank you. Our exploration of the archive has come to an end for another episode, but there's so much more to listen to. If you'd like to explore further, visit bl.uk forward slash allaboutsound. And to see a full track listing of the archive and music recordings in this episode, do take a look at the episode description. This is a Pixiu production for the British Library. The producers are Katie Davis and Alex Watson. Next time, writer Amy Littrop is diving beneath the surface into the British Library Sound Archive to hear how language on this island nation has been shaped by the sea. Until next time, from me, Lem Sisse, goodbye. Thanks for listening.